Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. On this day before the 4th of July, 2022, class teacher Doug Brady has prepared a lesson that is needed in our nation. Here we find the power of prayer and the lack of the use of this power. Listen carefully. See if you are in touch with God regarding the state of our great nation, the United States of America. The Believer's Bible Class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We invite everyone to visit our class, especially if you are desiring deep study of the Scriptures. We will welcome you to our class when you come. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin this lesson, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. You know, we have started a new series on Elijah, but when it's July 3rd, the day before Independence Day, you know, you got to remember we didn't fight a revolutionary war. A revolutionary war is when you change the government, the existing government. We didn't fight one of those. We fought a war for independence because we were separate from the government that was governance. We're not part of England. Today, we have to talk about it. And I found something that I had never known about before. Has anybody in here ever heard of the Forefathers Monument? All right, I got one. Has there been anyone here who's ever gone to see it? It's in Plymouth, Massachusetts. We're going to talk about that today. But uh, there's a few questions I want to ask first. But before we get started, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we are able to be here today. I pray that you will keep my voice strong and that you will speak through me, and I, if there's things I was going to say that I shouldn't, just take them from my mind. But Father, have your Holy Spirit here to speak to us, help us to understand the grave danger that our country is in today, and what we have to do to remedy that. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, there was a president that we had a couple of terms ago, uh, who looks like this. Some of you all remember Barack Hussein Obama. And he said something to us that I want to talk about to start with. Let's see what that is. He said, whatever we once were, we're no longer a Christian nation. At least, not just. We're also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. Now, I want to ask you, is what he said in that statement accurate? I hear some yes, some no. I don't like whatever we once were, but he does say we're no longer a Christian nation. Is that true? Yes, it is. 
I hate to say it, but yes, it is. And this final part, that we're a nation of all these others, is that true? Yes, it is. Now, let's ask a few other questions here that I think we need to answer. The first one is, was America great? You see, our last president, his moniker was, let's make America great again. Was America ever great? Yes. I think it, absolutely it was. But the next question is, what made her great? That's number one. Number, I mean, number two. Number three is, who made America great? What is and who is important? We want to discover that today. And one more question I think we have, why did America become a great nation? Those are three questions we're going to try and answer today. And we're going to try and come to this. Now, who was the very first person who thought it would be provident and even a religious thing to try and find a new world? Who? Christopher Columbus. If you wanted to confirm that, where would you look to see? That would be a mistake. But if you were to read Christopher Columbus's journals, you would find this, I believe. That's Christopher. Look what he said. Our Lord opened to my understanding. I could sense his hand on me. So it became clear to me that the voyage was feasible. All those who heard of my enterprise rejected it with laughter, scoffing at me. Who doubts this illumination was from the Holy Spirit? I attest that he, with marvelous rays of light, consoled me with the holy and sacred scriptures. Did you know Christopher Columbus believed that way? And he came and told us about a new country. Well, once the new world was discovered, there were people who wanted to go there. People who were willing to take that journey. And in our country, there were two areas, really. There was the Virginia area, or the Jamestown colonization effort or settlement, and the Plymouth colony. Now, each of those colonies or settlements were for two different reasons. Why did they come to Jamestown? Religious freedom. No, absolutely not. Let me take that back. Well... We allow Amalekites to take things back like that. They came for money and land. What about the Plymouth Colony? Religion. (laughs) Right. For civil and religious freedom. Civil and religious freedom. How do you know that? Well, the first thing is, before they got off the boat... Now, Don, do you know the name of the boat they came on? I certainly do, but I don't want to take it away from anyone else. Aha, he doesn't know. The Mayflower. Exactly. And it's now a moving company. (laughs) I'm not sure those two are tied together. But the fact is, they signed a compact, an agreement between and among themselves. And because they did, we can tell a little bit about how they were thinking. So we can know whether they came for civil and religious liberty. If you look at it, I have the whole compact there in your notes, but I extracted certain key parts. In the very first paragraph, it starts this way, in the name of God, amen. Now, you would expect that to be at the end. They put it at the beginning. What does amen mean? So be it, or it is so. And so the second paragraph starts this way, 
having undertaken for the glory of God an advancement of the Christian faith. Now, what's the primary reasons they undertook it? The glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony on the northern parts of Virginia. That's what they thought it was. Do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together in a civil body politic. Now, how would people view that today? The people who signed the Mayflower Compact couldn't care less because they wanted to express their beliefs and the purpose they were coming to the new world. Now, it was these kind of ideals which formed the basis for the establishment of our nation and its government. I want you to look at this government a second because this is a special government. Our government was a government of laws. Laws were supposed, the Constitution was supposed to be the ruler. The laws were not just laws that men came up with. They were just and biblically based. Biblically based laws. And we had a constitutional republic. And as you look back at it, and you compare it with the rest of history, it is the most unique and special government the world has ever seen. It was built on biblical ideas and a Christian worldview that these settlers and their progeny had. These ideals gave birth to the most free, the most prosperous, the most virtuous, the most just nation the world has ever witnessed. If maintained properly, it would produce magnificent results in perpetuity if maintained properly. Consider some of the earlier results of this new nation. It became the center for Christianity. It became the center for Christian scholarship. Some of us all know it. Over in Germany, they had to hire biblical critics. But you don't want to get me saying anything. I might get in trouble about higher biblical critics. But it became the center also of Christian scholarship. It sent out more missionaries to the rest of the world than any country has ever done in the past. It furthered the growth of civilization. And in fact, our country, like no other country in the world at the time, was, saw that civilization involved granting rights to women to be equal with men in so many ways, and yet at the same time to recognize the gender differences between them. Our country did that before anybody else in the world. But such founders and framers of our country and its constitution realized one important thing. They understood that such a government would be vulnerable. And that vulnerability could be attacked to undermine and eventually destroy this magnificent experiment that was called the United States of America. And so they decided to establish a monument that would, for perpetuity, remind us what was required to maintain their design and our country's magnificence. Unfortunately, we don't know about this monument. It's called the Forefathers Monument. It was patterned after Joshua chapter 4. In Joshua chapter 4, that was when... Joshua was instructed by the Lord God to have one man from every tribe to pick up the biggest stone he could from the middle of the Jordan River, which God had parted, and they were going through on dry land. 
and pick up one of those stones and take it and stack them in a stack of 12. And look what he said about this. Let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, say, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. When your son or your daughter says to you, Dad, what are these stones for? This is what you should tell them. You should remind them how we began and what God did. Now, as you look at this monument, I think you're going to see that they were concerned about the fatal weakness I just talked about. You see, they understood that every citizen in the new country was infected with a spiritual disease of sin. And you had to deal with sin to be able to maintain the kind of country and government that they wanted. Now, this monument was not adorned with the statues of people because people had that sin. Instead, it was adorned with statues that personified certain attributes and ideals that would maintain our country. And I'm going to want you to look at these with me and see how they come from the scriptures. They started working on this concept and they took their time of what should be in this monument. And there was almost as much arguing back and forth and discussion and debate as there was over the Constitution itself. By 1820, they finally had the concept and design. And they started in on this project. By 1859, the design was completed, the funds were raised, the property maintained, the materials procured, and the craftsmen engaged. And they laid the cornerstone in 1859. They didn't finish it for 30 years. 1889 was when it was finished. Now I want you to see the inscription on this uh, monument. Let's see if we can read that. Les, would you read that inscription for us? National Monument to the Forefathers, erected by a grateful people in remembrance of their labors, sacrifice, and sufferings for the cause of civil and religious liberty. That's what it was all about. This is about a memorializing the fight for civil and religious liberty. That's what was important to these people. Now, if you were to go to Plymouth, Massachusetts today, you would see this monument that looks something like this. You notice, you can see two of the statuary that are at the bottom. The other two are on the other side. But you see at the top one large statue. Do you see how that statue tends to, or seems to be so much more important than the others? And that was intentional. That statue, the top figure, represents faith. Because our founders realized without faith, there could be no country like ours. Now, if you look at her carefully, I want you to look at her right hand. What is she doing? She's pointing up. Because first and foremost in her mind, faith must be in the Lord God, our creator. But there was a second object of faith that she maintained, and that was what was in her left hand. When I get there, you will see that the second thing she has in her left hand is a Bible. And it's not solid. 
you can see that the pages are worn as if it's been used. Maybe you can see it over here. Right in here is the Bible. The pages are well-worn, and uh, she's placed her faith in the Bible. Now, that's the two objects of faith. They go hand in hand. We wouldn't know very much about God to trust Him and believe in Him if we didn't have the Bible. Yes? Looks like a shopping bag to me. Well, did you spend too much time with your wife then? You know, Kim's the one who carries. She's the one who buys. But let's talk about it. Is that biblical? That everything's to be about faith? The answer is clear. Let's look at some passages just so we can confirm that. If you look at Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace you've been saved through, or by means of, that's an ablative of means, by means of faith. And that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Now that's talking about the very first of the relationship, right? The point of justification. What about from then on? Does the scripture tell us that we're supposed to be about faith after that? Absolutely. If you look what Paul said in Colossians 2, 6, it says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? Through faith. So how are we supposed to relate to him? Which is what this word walking mean? It's faith. That's why she is on top. That's why she's bigger than everyone else. That's why she is dedicated to those two things. Faith starts everything. If the nation doesn't have faith, the nation will fail. Now, there are four more ideals that are placed around faith. The first one is morality. Let's look at morality. You see, it's a picture of a woman. She's holding the Ten Commandments in her hand, and she is there to speak about morality. The founding fathers said that no nation can endure long if its people forsake righteous and moral character. Look what it says in Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. That almost makes me want to cry to have to conclude. Right now, our nation is nothing but a disgrace because of the sin that is rampant. It is, we, what should be wrong, we consider to be right. And what should be right, we consider to be wrong. The loss of individual morals creates an overwhelming threat to a nation which loves freedom. Everybody's fundamental rights are threatened by a lack of morality. In a virtuous country, those assuming the mantle of government will be righteous. The righteousness of the country's leaders will extend freedom in that they will not seek to usurp individuals' rights in order to control or improve uh, their own goals or fortunes. So this first of four surrounding statues demands that the nation leaders are be men who are I guess described in 2 Corinthians 5.17 as new creatures, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, let me ask you a question. I want you to think this through. Who was the last president who you are certain was a born-again believer? How many of you think you would know the last president who you know for certain was a born-again believer? Jimmy Carter? Wait. Oh, he, he claimed to be. 
does a claim, hey, Barack Obama said he was a Christian and his favorite verse was John 16, 3. <laughs> did, you, did you believe that? Don, we're going to have to talk, obviously. But I want you to think about this. Morality, they put first after faith. Second, they put the law. The second and indispensable means for protecting civil and religious liberty is the law. This fellow represented the law. And uh, you notice his face is kind of stern. But there's a reason for that. The law shouldn't be changed. It shouldn't be applied differently. It should always be applied the same. Equal application of the law. Our founders considered the Bible, though, to be the sole source of truth and therefore determined it to be the foundation of our Constitution and the laws that emanated from our Constitution. Look, for example, what the Pilgrims said about this. In the laws of the Pilgrims, it says, quote, Laws are so far good and wholesome as by now much they are derived from and agreeable to the platform of God's law. Now, you read that, they talk a little differently than we do, and it maybe is a little difficult to understand. But what are they saying? Laws should be derived from God's law. They weren't the only ones who said things like that. Massachusetts. Massachusetts, in their body of liberties, written in 1641, states, in case of a defect of law in any particular case. Now, let's stop right there. What is that? What are they saying? If there's a problem with the law or something left out or a hole we find, a loophole, something like that in the law, what should we do? What does it say? The Word of God will be considered the standard. Massachusetts. You know, it's interesting. This is the guy with the law. On his seat, on one side is a relief that pictures justice. And on the other side, there's a relief that pictures mercy right there. And the relief is right above it. So it's the idea, you enforce the law with two considerations. Justice, attribute of God. Mercy, an attribute of God. And that's the way this concept was set up for the second of these four that surrounded faith. The third statute that surrounded faith was the mantle of education. Education. And this is the best picture I could find of this particular one on education. She has a star on the middle of her head which represents the Holy Spirit being empowering education. Now I want you to think about this just a second. Has anybody in here ever been referred to as being ignorant? Raise your hand if you've been referred to being ignorant. Most people don't understand ignorance. They equate ignorance with stupidity or moronity. Ignorance is not either of those things. Ignorance, instead, indicates just a lack of knowledge and awareness. It's just you don't know. For example, everybody in this class came in here this morning ignorant of the Forefathers Monument. You didn't know about it. There's nothing wrong with being ignorant except education is designed to fix that. But people who are ignorant will never remain a free people for very long. Benjamin Franklin, 
He warned us just now. They claim Benjamin Franklin's a deist. What is a deist? A deist is someone who believes God created and then turned around and walked away. He's not involved in the affairs of men. That's what they said. Listen to what Ben Franklin had to say as he warned us. A nation of well-informed men who have been taught to know and prize the rights which God has given them cannot be enslaved. It is in the region of ignorance that tyranny begins. Do you see that? You see, our founders believe that all of the nation's people should be educated, not just the elite. Everyone. Because elimination of ignorance is what keeps people free. Julie? Josie just said this week, you know, she's in Congress, that the Supreme Court was out of check, that the executive branch and the legislative branch needs to hold the Supreme Court in check. So she doesn't even know how the government... I have always believed that accepting constitutional law opinions from bartenders was not the wisest thing to do. But I was just going to suggest that. Well, let's, let's move on and see this, because knowledge of the truth, especially found in the Word of God, should be at the core of every man's understanding. The Massachusetts School Law of 1647 provided this. It being a chief project of that old deluder. Who is the old deluder? Well, they tell you. Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the Scriptures. That statue that represents education has an open Bible in their hand. It's hard to see with that picture, but it's an open Bible there. Yes, I haven't seen this personally, so I don't know what it... I, I told Julie what I need to do is fly up there before today and take pictures of everything. And she said I was being a little excessive and over the top. So I didn't fly up there and fly back. Yes, a class trip. But the education, this is important to see. And this is something that in our nation is trying to be destroyed. This statue is surrounded by two carved reliefs which depict the concept that family, both parents and grandparents, were to teach the youth a worldview based on a biblical perspective. Do you see a certain group in our country trying to do everything they can to stop homeschooling? To try and say, children don't belong to the parents, they belong to the community. Now that's a nice way of saying they belong to the government. And they don't. Now, the final of these four figures, these primary figures that surround the monument, is indicated to portray liberty. You see, our forefathers believed wholeheartedly that the fruit of a biblical faith, the fruit of a religious, a righteous morality, and coupled with a Bible-based law and education would provide lasting freedom, liberty, for their progeny, which is what they wanted. You see, the forefathers and founders, they didn't build this nation for themselves. They built this nation for whom would come after them. And I want you to see that liberty was the key. Well, wait, does it really talk about liberty and freedom in the Bible? Yes. Is that, yes. It does? What would you suggest we look at to confirm that? A plethora. plethora? Would Galatians 5.1 be one of them? I was 
Well, then let's look and see what John was thinking of. Because in Galatians 5.1, it says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I believe the scripture teaches both spiritual freedom and physical freedom. Enslavement is not anything that God wants. Enslavement is what Satan wants. God has always been the source of liberty granted to humans. And I want you to think about this a second. Who gave us the inalienable rights? God did. I've heard government officials, Janet Reno for one, no, the government gave you those. You ought to be thankful. No, the government didn't. God gave us those. Our founding fathers recognized inalienable rights means rights you can't take away from us. Well, there's a place called Haiti Shio. And there's two sides to it. And uh, one side is the side of torments. And I would think that her address is located in that side. But I'm not going to judge. And it may be that something happened in her life that changed things. And would... Yes. They were captives in Babylon, not really slaves. But they were in Egypt slaves. But there was a purpose for that. And God explained to Abraham the purpose of why it was going to happen. And he explained through Moses the purpose of why it did happen. And there was reasons for that. And really, if you think about it, you know what the reason, one of the primary reasons was? They were paying for the sins of the Amorites. Because they were held in captivity as slaves. Now, they're not, they weren't slaves like we understood slaves today. But because the sins of the Amorites weren't full. And once the sins of the Amorites were full, that's when God sent Moses take the people out, and to go back and to be his punishing instrument of the Amorites and the Canaanites, Jebusites and the Parasites. So, there was another fellow who signed, who was in the Constitutional Convention, who, you know, when professors talk about people who were present in the Constitutional Convention, there was a large number. I can't remember the exact number. But they always want to talk about two people. How many? 56? I thought there was... Two from every uh, state. But be whatever. You know, I should have just taken two, multiplied it by 13, and say 26. But be that as it may, I'm not sure. So I don't want to say it for certain. But there's two that professors in college want to talk about all the time. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. Why? Because they claim they're deists. And they say, see, they're deists. Everybody else was. The Constitution had nothing to do with God or the Bible. It just had to do with men's opinions. That's why you need to keep the founders bottom. Exactly. In fact, you know where I, I first learned about this monument? In the Founders Bible. And uh, you might look at that if you wanted to. But on his memorial, his words like this were recorded. God who gave us life gave us liberty. Now, wait a second. Deists believe that God doesn't participate in the affairs of men, but God gave us life? That's used in a, in a way that is both individual and corporate. God, who gave us life, gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that those liberties are a gift of God? 
Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. What would he be doing today? Jefferson understood that the cause of liberty was the cause of God. Noah Webster, when he published his own textbook on the history of the United States, one that's not used in most public schools today, in it he wrote, Almost all the civil liberty we enjoy in the world owes its origin to the principles of the Christian religion. The religion which has introduced civil liberty is the religion of Christ and his apostles, which enjoins humility, piety, and benevolence which acknowledges in every person, a brother or a sister or a citizen with equal rights. This is genuine Christianity. And to this we owe our free constitutions of government. Now that is the way it started. We are now, it appears to me, nearing the end of this great experiment. We have to ask this question. What has happened to our nation and to our government? It can be traced directly to the ignorance of and the antagonistic disregard of this design and the accompanying safeguards of our government that our forefathers created under the tutelage of their God. Now think about that a second. Do we have morality in our country today? No. Do we have the right kind of educational system? No. Do we have laws that are based on the Bible? Now, the answer to that is tricky. In one respect, is, is yes. But are they enforced? No. Are they interpreted in that vein? No. I think that we're trying. I mean, there's, there's great tours, uh, the Great Awakening tours, one across America. Uh, there's uh, homegrown people uh, forming communities under our sheriff. We're going to get to the trying here in just a second. Will we be successful? I don't know the answer to that. But let's talk about that in just a second. And I, we can hear some of those things. I want you to see, what about the faith in our nation in the one true God? It's scoffed at. As a result, there's been a loss of faith in our, in our... Every poll they take, do you believe there's only one true God, the percentage goes down, 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 and down. And it may be under 10% right now. Unfortunately, yes. As a result of the loss of faith, the morality of our country has disregarded. Now, if you were to read the book of Judges, it shows this precept and this concept is very clear. If you have a faith in God, you believe that he tells you what's right and wrong, what's, what's righteous and what's irrighteous. But if you don't have a faith in God, then men make their own determinations of what's right and wrong. And they will always be a de-evolution of morality when that occurs. The book of Judges is perfect proof of that. And that is what has happened in our country, the morality of our nation has greatly decreased. As a result of that, there's been a disintegration of our educational system. And it fails to fulfill its purpose and its duty as set up by the founders. Instead, you know our education system being used? It's being used by that old deluder who they wrote about back in 1641 to indoctrinate our children. Our children 
are being taught, I'm just going to give you some examples. They're being taught that racist concepts in the schools. If you're white, you're a racist. If you think that God made you a girl, but you're really a boy, then you should change that. God didn't know what he was doing. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you believe that you should have a romantic relationship, if you are a boy and have a romantic relationship with another boy, there's nothing wrong with that. They're being taught those things. Perversion, hatred, the end justifies the means. Morality is what you think it is. Integrity means doing what's right for you. All of those things, not only do people believe, they're being taught that in our schools. Yes, ma'am. Exactly. If you think about it, evolution was part of this in that if there's no God, we're just higher order of animals. If you carry it out to the extreme, how can they say anything was wrong with the Holocaust where six million Jews were killed? Hey, they're the weaker. This is the survival of the fittest. Clearly, we're the fittest. They're not. We kill them off and we make the human race better. Yes, Daniel. If all of those things are okay, why is it okay for us to say they aren't okay? Because we're not... Oh, I thought you were going somewhere else. No, we have a right, not only a right, but an obligation to stand up and say, that is not right. We can't agree with that. We've got to change back or our country will die. Kim. I might be the only one here. Well, that's usual. Thanks about this. I read the beginning of Revelation. Jesus has a lot to say about most of the churches. And I think... That uh, and a lot of it is negative. If you think that the church isn't partly guilty of this, then I think you're wrong. I'm convinced that, that it isn't... So we'll get to that in just a minute, I promise you. Give me just a second. Well, you're right. And the, our education system is creating ignorant adults who are vulnerable to enslavement, and we see it happening. And with the failure of the educational system, it has led to a disregard for our laws and the integrity of our legal system, just a complete disregard. We now can weaponize our legal system, and it's being weaponized by immoral and unethical leaders and used to destroy their enemies. And now the law is often unenforced or bought off by those same kind of men. We live in a county where the district attorney says, I am not enforcing those laws. I don't believe in them. But wait a second. Didn't you swear an oath to uphold the Constitution and the laws of the state of Texas? Oh, but your word evidently didn't count. And you made that same oath when you were as a judge for multiple terms. What's going on here? Oh, well, the end justifies the means. As a result of this moral rigor mortis of our country and its effect on our laws and our educational system, our liberty is being lost. And at such an accelerated pace that soon we will all be slaves of our inverted and stolen government. As a result, we the people is being changed to we the few. Now, 
If Thomas Jefferson was here and he knew what was going on in our country, what would be the condition of his blood? Boiling. Exactly. It would be boiling. Why isn't our blood boiling just as hot? All right. What should we do? What should we do? Let's talk about that just a second. I want you to consider once again how our country was great. Why? In Psalm 75, 2 through 7, it says this. This is God speaking. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. For not from east, nor from west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Who made America great? God did. What made it great? Biblical beliefs. That has changed. Now, who knows the Word of God better than anyone else, Kim? Christians. Who knows what should be done in our country better than anyone else? They should. Do you see Christians standing up and saying, that's wrong? Very few. And when they do stand up and they are taught, sought to be marginalized by the news media, by government leaders, by uh, uh, society in general, what do the other Christians do? Do they stand up to support them and fight back? They don't do it. They don't do it because they don't have the courage to do and take a stand. We don't have our churches preaching the gospel anymore either. No, we don't. Do the preachers prophesy as they should, like we talked about with Elijah? No, they don't. They come out of seminaries and they're ignorant. We say they know lots of things. Yeah, but they're ignorant of what they need to know, which is the Bible. But don't you think the problem is that even though almost everyone is that there's power in numbers and there's no way to get them to do That's not the kind of weapon I think we need to be using primarily. I think the kind of weapon we need to use is found in Second Chronicles. And Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. When my people... Kim, who are his people now? The church, right? Yes, the church is his people now. When my people who are called by my name... Now think about that a second. Who are the people in the church called? Christians. What does that mean? Christ in one. That's what the name means. Christians, yes. So, I, so if someone says, where do you, where do you live? I, I, uh, I lived in Texas. Oh, that means you're in Texas. Yeah, it does. So if you come to Texas, you'll, you'll know the bravado of Texas and just the way we think in Texas. If you're a Christian, then you're going to be Christ-like. You can call, your Christian, call yourself a Christian all you want. That's what God wants, and that's what the process after justification and before glorification is all about, becoming more Christ-like. And that's what we can be. Now, whenever there was something 
that Christ was going to do, what did he proceed it with? Prayer. Let's look back. My people, called by my name, humble themselves. That's number one. Pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Does the church rampant with wickedness today? Yeah. Yeah. Turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. I think if the church were to turn, like it says here, he's going to have to do one of two things. He's either going to have to restore America, or he's going to have to come get us. One of those two. Now, some people may say, you know, we pray and nothing happens. I have to admit to you that I was convinced that I needed to pray about appealing Roe versus Wade. And I prayed for three years about that. Some of you have been in the class, you've heard me when I was up there praying it. I, and I would go places and pray it. And I would study on it to be able to pray intelligently. But I have to admit to you, I was kind of like the apostles who were praying that God would save Peter from being beheaded like James was. And when Peter showed up, we're busy praying, don't, don't disturb us. But we saw what God could do. And Roe versus Wade is overturned. Can he do the same thing in other things in our government, in our nation, if the people will pray? But we aren't praying. This is the most powerful weapon you could possibly have as a believer. Direct access to the throne of God Almighty. You know, if you study in Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about the weapons of the believer. And it goes through them. And it compares them to the weaponry or the arsenal of a Roman soldier. But when Paul got to prayer, there was nothing to compare it with. And so he just talks about it right at the end of those. But that is our primary weapon. That is the weapon that gives us an advantage over every single foe. That's what we have to be doing. America, godly people need to be called to prayer. Now, if there's a call to prayer, there's also going to be a call to revival. That just comes naturally because we're all about reproduction. And as revival comes, real revival, there will be more prayer. And the prayer will become, you know, let me ask you a question. Is there a difference in the power between one person praying and multiple people getting together and praying the same thing? Why does it say when two or more gathered in my name praying, the Holy Spirit is there in their presence. <laughs> exactly, Laura, that is exactly right. It's that agreement of believers in prayer that I think heightens its power. There were so many people praying for the reversal of Roe versus Wade. People crying in, in their prayers that God would answer. And he did. Kim. You might want me to leave the class after I say it. <laughs> well, there's a, no. Prayer is everything he said. And when Jesus prayed, when he got done, he went out on a mission. See, physically, he did not sit on the rock and watch the reruns of the Maury Pope show. 
I would agree with you on that. Jesus did take action. No, it's not prayer. We are here, we are left here on this earth not to just pray, but to do. That's right. We got to do. We can't sit there when we know that there's a, a, a gathering tonight or a Saturday night against abortion and, and what we yes. can do for, for uh, against that and, and donate some dollars to it. Uh, we can't just say, well, I'm just going to pray. I'm a little bit too busy on Saturday night because I'm, I want to do something. I'm tired. Kim, let me suggest this to you. I don't believe that you can really pray for something and do nothing. Amen. Well, you must. Your point is accurate. And I don't want you to leave. Stay here. But we have to act. Daniel, do you believe that? That we have to act? Not just pray? Rena, do you believe that? Chris, do you believe that? Laura, do you believe that? We all should. And we should be strong. Vera. Okay. One of the things that we can do I just watched a really phenomenal video, and it talks about the infiltration in the church and what's going on. Barbie doll now is coming out with pregnant men. We need to start as Christians to boycott. Look at what's happening to Red Bath and Beyond. Start boycotting these woke corporations. Along with prayer, boycott. That's hard to do for some of us, but... We should sacrifice. Julie, what were you going to say? To say, and I think it was your mother, you used to say it all the time. You can do a lot, but you can do nothing until you pray. Amen. Because only God directs you what He wants you to do. And that begins on your knees, humble before the Lord, and you don't get out and do something that He's not called you to do until you've gotten on your knees. Kim, do you disagree with that? All right, that's just the key. Now, wait, you had something. Um, I, I think you're always by the ocean. I think that. It's something that happened to me about 20 years ago. And I believe that it's that it's about to get, or already hit the Supreme Court, but I've been getting put back together. Um, my name is Julie. My name is Julie. I'm really but you keep praying and praying and you keep believing. God is eventually, there's a whole lot on earth. God answers all prayers, right? God is going to answer a prayer. Now, it may be no, it may be yes, or it may be wait. I'm not ready yet, but He answers. Now, our time has run out, and I think we ought to pray. But I want us to consider strongly the obligation. Paul said in 2 Timothy, I pray day and night. Now, he was in prison at the time, so easier for him to pray day and night than maybe for us. But we need to commit to a, a ministry of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend. I thank you for this wonderful gift you've given us in the nation in which we live. That we were born Americans. How fortunate we were that you placed us here in this kind of country. But now, Father, I'm asking you, please, to help us recognize what has happened to our country. And I know it has happened slowly, but it has still happened, and we should see. We look at this monument that you had these men and women build for us to guide us in the future. Help us to see how far off track we've gotten. And help us to see that it's because we've sat and done nothing. We should have organized back in the 50s to pray 
against sexual revolutions that were changing things, against moral revolutions and educational revolutions. We should never allow people to get elected who won't enforce the laws. But we have sat and said nothing. And when somebody does say something and everybody else charges against him, we desert. Father, I pray that you give us courage like you promised Joshua in the first chapter of his book. And that we walk according to your scriptures, never varying to the left or to the right, but straight ahead following your scriptures. Give us the courage to say no to what is wrong. To stand up, sometimes to put ourselves at risk because of it. Help us also to see the importance of sharing the good news of the gospel that you have given and entrusted to us to share. As we can expand the army of prayers, that we can expand the group who would say, no, I'm going to vote for righteousness. Give us men and women who will run for office, who are righteous and know you, and who are willing to serve in the capacity as your conduits. Father, restore our nation. Revive our nation. Bring us back to the time of greatness when we were free to worship you and to share that gospel message here at home and in the rest of the world. Pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, who's supposed to be our guide. Amen. Amen.